Almighty God, we do come before you, Lord, with that longing we spoke of last week that we heard from Isaiah that you would come down and rend the heavens and be among us to save us. And Lord, we are grateful that we have already heard in your reading of of your word, your response. Comfort, comfort my people. Would you comfort us this morning through word and sacrament, we pray, and send us out from this place to be like Zion and Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news of your presence. Behold our God. We give ourselves to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. James, that was awesome. Man, you're getting so... I remember when you could barely be seen over the pulpit here and... Oh my goodness. I haven't even been here that long. (laughs) Well, please turn with me, if you would, to our lesson this morning from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be looking there at verses 1 through 11. And I love the progression of our lessons from Isaiah each Sunday during Advent, at least these first three Sundays of Advent. I love the progression Moving from last week, Isaiah 64, this week, Isaiah 40, next week, Isaiah 65, and the proclamation of the new heavens and new earth is such a fitting movement and progression. Last week, we encountered Isaiah's intercessory prayer on behalf of Israel in chapter 64. And through his prayer, Isaiah gives voice to an impatient longing for God to come down. You remember the fervency with which he prayed, rip the heavens, shake the earth, boil the seas, take apart this world brick by brick, but come down and save whatever it takes, God. And why does Isaiah call upon God to come down with such fervor? Because the people of Judah and Israel had hardened their hearts to him to the point that there was no one, Isaiah says, no one who called upon the name of the Lord and that there was no one who even cared, that even cared to be bothered with him. And so God hides his face from his people. He removed from them his favor and his blessing. That was the context with which Isaiah cries out with such longing for God to come down and save. He calls upon God to return, to come down and save them as, as he mentions there in that text, as our Father. To come down and do a new work of creation and redemption as the true potter. Isaiah's intercessory prayer embodies that fervent and at times impatient longing that, ca- that characterizes Advent A longing for God, for King Jesus to return, to save and redeem ultimately, to judge and vindicate completely, and to make all things new. A longing expressed there in verse 12 of chapter 64. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? We know from the earlier, from later in in chapter 63, he's asking God, why have you restrained your zeal and your might? Why do you restrain your tenderness and compassion? Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? For many of us, this is our cry today, all around the world and in this congregation For ourselves, when we are held tightly in the grasp of our own sin, or we feel the weight of the brokenness of this world, for those we love whose hearts are hardened to God and we desire for them to return, 
knowing that apart from God's work in their life, that return is impossible. For even our own country and our world that is turned so far from God, we have that same longing for God to come down. Jesus, where are you? Why do you restrain yourself at this time? Come down with unrestrained compassion and power to save. And this week we hear God's answer to such longing in our lesson from Isaiah chapter 40. And his response is one of comfort. And these are indeed words of comfort and they are given to a people whose whole world has been shattered by sin. And for people like that, cheap comfort is only a waste of time. Indeed, it can be cruel. Comfort that is not grounded in reality is no comfort at all. But the word of comfort that Isaiah delivers here is not like that at all. It is based on truth at every point. Indeed, it is based on truth itself, on God himself. As we'll come to see in verse 8, my word will stand forever. Notice the progression of comfort in our passage. It moves from the message and assurance of God that we hear to the vision of God's glory that we see to the encounter of God's comforting and tending presence that we experience. So let's begin there with the message and the assurance of God that we hear. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. I encourage you to Get a pew Bible out and follow along. We're going to be looking at this entire passage. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Remember last week we heard that iniquity, that they were, that their iniquity held them captive in its strong, powerful grip here, their iniquity is pardoned, it's forgiven. Continuing on, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We hear here in these verses the tender compassion of God, His disposition of love, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally, this is translated, speak to her heart. Heart-to-heart communication. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. This language reveals God's desire to restore intimacy. The intimacy that had been broken by Israel's rebellion. But he is desiring to restore it, to come back. He's rending the heavens. He's coming down. He's speaking tenderly to Jerusalem. He's no longer desiring to hide his face from his people. This is like when you've been fighting with someone you love very dearly. Someone whom you have wounded in that fight, and you hear them after a period of time, after a cooling off period, you hear them speak again to you for the first time after that tenderly. You know how much that means. I'm no longer angry with you. I desire to forgive you. That's what God's doing. That's what God's doing in Isaiah 40. When he says, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to them. And when we hear God's tender heart-to-heart speech, 
What does he say to comfort us? What is the content of this comfort? He expresses to us his grace-filled desires. You see them there in verse 2. His desire to redeem us. Your warfare is ended. The battle is won and it's over. The, the language there of warfare is, is, speaks of compulsory uh, service in the military. But there are a few times in Numbers and in Leviticus where it refers to temple service, spiritual warfare. And I think this is probably what's in view here. Your warfare as a kingdom of priests is come to an end. I have stepped in and done the work for you. God communicates his desire to redeem. Your warfare is ended. His desire also here is to forgive us. Your iniquity is pardoned. And that's a full stop. He doesn't explain it. Throughout the rest of the second half of Isaiah, we understand how that works. But here he just merely states it in the affirmative. Your iniquity is pardoned. But comfort doesn't end there. He further expresses his desire to restore. Now this verse, this last part of verse 2 could easily be misconstrued as if God is heaping up a double portion of judgment. But that's not what he's doing here. Israel will receive here from God a double portion of grace and blessing as Isaiah explains later in chapter 61 verse 7. Just listen to this, uh, his words there. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. God is not only reversing things here. He's going to bless them far and above whatever they could think or imagine here. He's not just restoring them to some past state of blessing. He's going to bless them far beyond anything they've ever experienced in their lives. This is a message of comfort. He will redeem us. He will forgive us. And then he will bless us beyond our imagination. And we'll look at that blessing next week in Isaiah 65. Yet the governing language of verse 2 Speak tenderly, speak to the heart, is not merely expressing comfort, but it is also seeking to persuade, to invite us to respond to God's declaration of love and comfort. And that's exactly what we hear in verses 3 and 4. We hear in metaphorical language God's desire for us to respond to his message of comfort. Listen again. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The language here of topographical change metaphorically describes repentance. This is at least how John the Baptist and the gospel writers understood it. Listen again there to our gospel reading from Mark. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, and he quotes our passage here. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And that voice is the voice of John. He, was, he appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance. 
for the forgiveness of sins. God's disposition to forgive them is already there. His determination has already been set to them. I will redeem you. I will forgive you. I will bless you. Merely turn to receive it. Turn to receive it. This is the language of repentance. This is the language of preparation. We're not working to earn our salvation here. God has already determined it. We're merely turning to receive it from his gracious hand. In speaking tenderly to our hearts, his message of comfort, God desires for us to respond by turning to him and confessing where we have sinned, where we have departed from his way, where we have wounded him, where we have not been faithful to him in our relationship. If we return to the example of that relationship with the one we love dearly, the relationship in which we have been fighting, where we have wounded the other person, and we hear them speak tenderly to us again for the first time, that tender speech is an invitation. It's an invitation to admit where we were wrong, to admit where we went wrong, to admit where we have wounded the other person. And that invitation presents us with a choice. When we're in the middle of a relationship and we're in those moments, we know we're presented with a choice in that. Will we turn to them and admit and own what we had done, wounding them? Or will we, in pride or whatever motivation there is, refuse to face them and instead double down in an attempt to justify ourselves, our actions? This sort of repentance that God calls us to is not easy. It feels like mountains being torn down and valleys being raised up. Yet the promise is that if we turn and confess our sin, God will reveal himself to us as the God of all comfort. Look with me at verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That's the fullness of who God is. His character, his being, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In turning to God, we see his glory. It's always there. Yet when we turn our back to him through our sin, we are not encountered, where we do not encounter his glory, we're not confronted with it, but he begs us to turn around in compassion and tenderness, speaking tenderly to our heart. And when we turn to him, we see his glory and we receive freely his redemption, his forgiveness, and his restored favor. This is the message of God's comfort. Yet we must admit that the message of his comfort and the promise to see his glory is difficult at times to believe, especially when we are still held in bondage to our sin. When guilt and shame flood our heart, and seek to drown out the tender voice of our God, or when the one we love whose heart is hardened to God seems never, never to soften. God knows that this is the case, and so hear his assurance in verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word, his message of hope here, can be relied upon because it does not fade away or decay as we do. It does not die off, but rather it stands forever. And we are in a better position than the audience that Isaiah first prophesied this to. We have the surety of his promise in that Jesus has already come. The person who cannot rest his or her whole weight on the word of God will never know true peace. True peace is only found here in a trusting relationship with the God who made us and rightly claims us as his own. And that's what he's doing when he rends the heavens and he comes down and he speaks these words of comfort. He's claiming us. Reliance upon the word of God is not fatalistic or superstitious. It is not trust in something impersonal like the stars, the zodiac signs, some good luck charm. It is trust in a person who is committed to us and has all the resources necessary to care for us. It is the word of our God. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. This is the word of our God that Isaiah delivers, a message of comfort that arises from a relationship. And the truth is that God's word has the same character as God himself. It is unchanging and reliable, just as unchanging and reliable as he is. Yet hearing the message of God's comfort is not the end. We might content ourselves right there with verse 5, but remember, God wants to give us a double portion. Verse 5 has already indicated that Comfort moves beyond the message that we hear to the vision of God's glory that we see. Look there at verses 9 and 10. We're invited now by Zion and Jerusalem, these heralds of good news, to look and see. Go on top of a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Look, you do not have to rely on your ears only now. Look and see God. He's here among us. And what do they see? Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Remember, Isaiah in chapter 64 prayed that God would unrestrain his might and zeal and come among them. Behold, the Lord comes now with that unrestrained might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. God's word, his message of comfort can be relied upon. And here we see it embodied. Behold your God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. God is here. Turn and look. And what is the vision of God that we see when we turn to him? We see God as our divine warrior king returning from battle. He is victorious and he is carrying something in his arms. He is carrying the spoils of war. And you know what those spoils are? It is you. He's carrying you. He's carrying me. 
The vision that Isaiah sees here is none other than King Jesus, our great warrior king who by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary ripped the heavens apart and became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to the Father's will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all that by his suffering and death we might be saved. I hope these words are familiar to you. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. He's our great warrior king. He has ended our warfare. He has paid our sin debt. The enemy is defeated. He has snatched us from the clutches of sin and death. And now he carries us as the spoils of war into his father's kingdom. That's the image that Isaiah gives us. Behold, your God. Yet the comfort of God that Isaiah proclaims does not even end there with this vision of Jesus as our victorious warrior king. He goes one step further, one step deeper, and he declares the comfort we receive through personal and intimate encounter with Jesus as our good shepherd. Look at verse 11 as we conclude. Now it's not what we look at, but it's now what is happening, the experience of it. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The vision of Jesus as the divine warrior king who carries us away in victory from the clutches of sin and death is now transformed into the experience of Jesus as the good shepherd. The good shepherd. What we see there, his tenderness and compassion are no longer merely spoken of in comforting words of promise, but now word takes on flesh and wraps us up in his powerful yet tender arms of compassion and mercy and love. As our good shepherd, he will tend to our needs. He will gather us as we go astray from time to time, calling us back with a voice that only his sheep recognize. And he will carry us when we cannot carry ourselves through that valley, that dark, shadowy valley, and he will, through that, gently lead us on beside still waters and green pastures, right on into the kingdom where there is a table prepared for us. He will give us rest on every side. This is the comfort that God offers in response to our Advent longing for Jesus to come down and rip the heavens and return as our king. And this message of comfort requires from us a twofold response as Isaiah sees it. One, prepare, prepare your heart and life for the return of the king. Are you ready to meet him when he rips the clouds again and descends? Make repentance a part of your life. In faith, trusting yourself, entrusting yourself to him, continually return to him over and over again to hear the comfortable words. I love you. I have forgiven you. 
I am not angry with you. Prepare. But then we cannot just prepare and keep this all to ourselves. We must also proclaim. We respond to the comfort we have received by spreading the glad expectation that others can experience this comfort as well. Remember the glory. The glory of God is for all flesh to see. C.S. Lewis explains how this works. When he writes, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. It's lovely. Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So praise Thank God for the gift, the comforting gift of his presence, that he is your good shepherd, and tell people about it. Isn't it awesome that he takes us in his arms? Buy an icon of the good shepherd and display it prominently in your house and talk to people about it when they come over. Shape your children's imagination around it. Just this week, Matthias, a little over two and a half was looking at the icon we have of the good shepherd of the house, and he's saying, Jesus, hold me. He was telling us. He was praising. He was bearing witness to the good news. God's purpose is not merely that you and I enjoy the comfort of the gospel, as wonderful as that is, but that we increase our enjoyment of it by spreading that joy to others. All to the glory of our good and great warrior king. All to the glory of our good and great shepherd. This Advent, turn your praise into public decoration of the one who offers you comfort. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.